You're listening to Gender, A Wider Lens. I'm Stella O'Malley, a psychotherapist in Ireland. And I'm Sasha Ayad, an adolescent therapist in the United States. Since 2016, my practice has been exclusively dedicated to gender-questioning teens and families impacted by gender dysphoria. I also work with gender-questioning teenagers, and I facilitated support meetings for families and individuals who've been impacted by gender issues. We're curious about the concept of gender and how it's unfolding in the wider culture. Join us as we look at gender through a wider lens. We're really looking forward to our second Wider Lands Renewal Retreat at the very end of October. Yes, it's going to be right here in my backyard in beautiful Scottsdale, Arizona. It was a really special occasion and it really did seem to be truly transformative. And parents who attended last time were very keen to come together for another retreat. Yeah, and for those of you who didn't attend last time, this is a retreat for parents who are seeking a deeper understanding of themselves and of their gender-questioning child. And it's also for parents who need some time out for some self-reflection and who want to parent with more confidence. Yeah, so please join me, Stella, and our dear friend and colleague, Lisa Marciano, in Scottsdale, Arizona this fall. The Eventbrite link will be in the show notes, and you can also Google Wider Lens Renewal Retreat Arizona. We hope to see you there. Denise is the founder of Fourth Wave Now, the very first parent blog in the U.S., exposing the dangers and madness of the gender-affirmative model of care for minors. In 2014, Denise seemed to be an ordinary U.S. mother who happened to work in healthcare when her then 17-year-old daughter, out of the blue, texted her a link to a gender doctor's website that claims he approves surgery and hormones for trans people. Denise referred to herself as a good liberal who didn't know anything about this, but she was willing to investigate. So she made some phone calls. She soon became puzzled by the responses of the gender affirmative clinicians and decided she needed to do some of her own research. As it turns out, Denise was actually quite extraordinary. Always a maverick and a deep thinker, she found herself accidentally starting the groundbreaking website Fourth Wave Now, which grew to play a huge role in the careful analysis and documentation of the psychological and medical harms being done to young people in the name of gender. Today, we talk with Denise, and she reflects on how the U.S. has changed in its approach to this issue and some of the challenges we face when promoting gender exploratory therapy. This is a special conversation since Denise is so insanely knowledgeable about all things contemporary gender debates, from the big picture to the -the behind-the-scenes internet drama. And by the way, her daughter no longer identifies as trans, so she tells us about that story too. So buckle in and enjoy our conversation with the founder of Fourth Wave Now, Denise. Hello, Stella. Hi, Sasha. We have an important guest on our show today. Yes, we do. Denise, welcome to the program. We're so glad to have you. Hi, glad to be here. We we know that your um, kind of history with Fourth Wave Now is very, very interesting. And for those who aren't that familiar with the blog, maybe we can start from the beginning and you can tell us why did you decide to start Fourth Wave Now and what was it like in those kind of early years? Well... Uh, We wouldn't even be talking to each other if it weren't for my daughter, who announced to me out of literally nowhere, she did it over a text message, she said, uh, no, she didn't say anything. She sent me a link. She sent me a link to an online doctor of some sort who would approve uh, hormones and surgeries without comment. 
random? <laughs> well, it wasn't totally random. I mean, okay. it was in as much as I had no idea she thought she was trans. Um, but you know, my daughter is, my daughter's a lesbian. She's open about that. Um, you know, quote unquote, somewhat gender nonconforming. So, you know, at that time I was completely ignorant of what the problem might be with transition. I mean, I was, how old was she when she sent you the link? She had just turned 17. Okay. So older than some that that are now doing it. Yeah. Right. Did you think, like, did you think, ring the fire brigade, did you think this is shocking or did you think this is a bit strange? No. Well, you know, look, good liberal my whole life, uh, you know, kind of go with the tribe. I'm less of a tribal person now, (laughs) Um, (laughs) partly thanks to this. But it was like, oh, okay. You know, I mean, I kind of was thinking like a lot of good liberals who didn't know anything about it. This is the next civil rights movement. I have nothing to, nothing against trans people. I still don't have anything against trans people. Um, and I was kind of like, oh, okay. You know, and we talked briefly. And I, so I decided to call some therapists, right? And I got a hold of a gender therapist. The first one I talked to, very nice on the phone, really nice trans man. Um <laughs> And I remember one of the first things I said to him was, well, you know, I kind of think she's a lesbian and she hasn't had a lot of, uh, you know, relationships or anything yet to, to know about this. And he said, oh, you know, a lot of the young people just skip that step nowadays. He just said it very matter of factly. And I was like, OK, you know, I'm just kind of taking it in. And I made an appointment. And the same week, the appointment was there's a, a support group for uh, young teenage trans people. And I thought, okay, this is great, you know, fine, fine. So, but, you know, in my career, I'm in an allied health field. I've been involved in a lot of research. I actually worked for a university at one point where we I did research studies. And I started digging into it, you know, deeper than what's being said on the surface on the Internet. And I was brought up short reading about testosterone, um, because I was like, okay, hang on one minute. These changes are going to be permanent, a lot of them, if she does go forward with this. You know, all the things we know. The hair loss, the voice, all those things. And I was like, okay, well, I'm not so sure we should maybe show, slow down on this. And then I kind of dug further, and I was like, yeah, wait a minute. I think I'm going to cancel that appointment. I mean, wow. I honestly feel, because you guys know, you're both therapists. I mean... Even one or two sessions with a therapist who would have been completely 100% affirmative, I believe my daughter now could possibly have gone mm-hmm. forward, you know. Um, so I do think it's important that I stopped it. Um, and then I got more and more. Along. Okay, so so she was um, 17. And what year was that that she sent you the link? 2014. 2014. Okay, so just to put that into context, right? So at the time, you didn't really suspect that she was trans, but she sent you the link and I guess you felt like, well, as a good liberal, if this is something that my kid really needs to do, I'll go along with it. Then you started researching and then you put the brakes on the appointments and the therapy. Fast. Fast. 
<laughs> I, I do yeah. need to say, though, that you are unusual because an awful lot of parents I've met from 2014, 2015, maybe they didn't have the, the training you had to read research. They, yeah. they had, a, had a reaction. They weren't happy. They, they didn't want things to go forward, but they they weren't able to navigate what I, I did find. The first few years, I commented very little on, on the research because I couldn't get my head around. It was hard, dense, difficult, because suddenly a research would have a conclusion and the headline would give the opposite conclusion. And still does, yeah. Yeah. So I think you were unusual that you... You went so fast and you could read the research so well. Well, I mean, there's a few things. That, yes, that training. Also, I'm a little bit of a maverick (laughs) in general. Um, I mean, all of the surface level stuff about trans issues was rah, 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 right? Even in 2014. And uh, do you want me to go to the next step after I kind of looked into the research? So then I'm like, okay. I just, uh, my gut is to, and it really was my gut, was saying, hang on a minute. And, you know, look, it's the story that everybody tells, right? She sounded scripted. She almost sounded robotic. She was saying things she'd never said before. And it was obvious to me that this had come from the Internet. It was just perfectly obvious to me. So I thought, okay, first of all, maybe there needs to be some stepping back from some of the stuff she's imbibing on there. Um uh, but then also I thought, okay, I'm, I can't be alone in my concerns. You know, I, I can't be the only, yes, I'm a maverick. Yes, I'm different in many ways. But, you know, there have to be other parents who are concerned about this. So I went on the Internet and I'm like, okay, I'm going to find them. Oh, my God. It was like I, I searched and I searched and I scoured and I scoured and I scoured. I, I mean, I spent hours. I wasn't intending to start a website. I, you know, I was like, I got to find somebody else. Help me with this. You know, um, all I found literally was one mother commenting on, I don't even remember where it was. She com- I managed to get a hold of her. I mean, her daughter had already gone way down the road. And, but that's all I found. That's it. And so I'm like, okay. I mean, I've said this many times. Starting fourth wave now initially was just a cry into the dark. It was, I just wanted to find other people who could relate to what I was going through. Um, and they came. If you build it, they will come. <laughs> How did you feel when you were starting at that first night when you were putting out the blog? Were you frightened or? Well, so I don't know if you know, I started on Tumblr, the belly of the beast. Okay. Like <laughs> I posted my big, my big opening article on Tumblr and, uh, of course, I got attacked viciously. Tumblr. I mean, I didn't know. I knew Tumblr was a place the kids were going, but I didn't know that it was, you know, sort of a den of snakes in there, right? Um, <laughs> you know, I got, the, I got the death threats and all that crap. Um, but uh, the reason it, the, frankly, the reason it, 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 it took off at the very beginning is, I don't know if you remember the website Gender Trender that was thrown off of WordPress. Uh, the person running it was named Gallus Mag. She did a lot of work. I think she started looking at this in like 2010. I went on that website and I said, oh, hi, I'm a parent. You know, I have a daughter, blah, 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 blah. I would appreciate a, a boost. So they, ha- that, they did help with uh, getting it sort of started. 
I moved over to WordPress within a couple of months because um, I wanted to get out of there, this, this Tumblr cesspool, you know, and get out into the real world, as it were. Um, and, I mean, what happened was, you know, it, it could have just been a support website if I had stayed with Is Anybody Out There, you know, if that's all yeah. I was doing. But because of my background and my inquisitiveness and everything else, it turned into much more than that. It, it, it turned into much more than a personal blog, as I'm sure you're aware. Um, you know, it, it, there's a number of articles on there that, I mean, nobody else has talked about uh, Pop-Tarts, Johanna Olson Kennedy and Pop-Tarts, uh, and some of the other key, key illustrious figures uh, in this world, uh, especially in the U.S. In, in fairness, we should say the top tar- Could you say the pop? We, us three know the pop tart story, and I know a lot of readers would know it. But there's so many new people to this world. Do you? Uh, so, yeah. do you put links? Yeah. To stuff when yeah. in your description, yeah. you might want to since we're talking about it. And I did talk about it when I uh, talked to Benjamin Boyce, so we might want to talk about some other ones too. It's just pop tarts really stands out. Um. It, it was a. You want me to describe it? So, in, I believe it was 2017 Quickly. U.S. Yeah. U.S. Yeah. Path Conference. Uh, Johanna Olson Kennedy uh, was. We had we had somebody there who was recording for us. By that point, we were a we, and it's still a we. It's a small we. There's like uh, about three other people who work with me, um, but we got somebody to go there and record. And basically, she tells the story of how a child, a mom, came in with her daughter. The daughter was gender nonconforming and so on, and, and she proudly tells the story of how she asked this little girl, oh, well, so if you if there was a strawberry Pop-Tart and it was in a, I can't remember, peach wrapper, what, would it, what kind of a Pop-Tart would it be? And the little girl's like, well, it would still be a strawberry Pop-Tart, right, just because it's in the wrong wrapper. And then Olson Kennedy describes how the, you know, from her point of view, the child had this epiphany. Oh, I guess I'm a strawberry pop tart in the wrong wrapper. But the, chi- the the important thing about that story is that the girl was not coming in saying I have gender dysphoria. I'm a boy. Nothing like that at all. Um so it was kind of like she, you know, she suggested it to her. Um so anyway, we 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 you know we I wrote several articles based on what this person who's recording for us found at that conference. And there were several others. Uh, there's one, there's a clinician in San Francisco who I don't know if he still does this, but he talked about transitioning multiple personalities. And the article I wrote on that is called not plural phobic because that's what he said. He's not plural phobic. And he describes transitioning multiple personalities, even when they are not in agreement about their gender identity. Wow. And at this stage, if this is 2017, you must have by now, like you said, you've been to the belly of the beast. And by now you'd realize that there was a massive a kind of suppression of debate and a massive kind of orchestrated campaign to, to silence people who, who try to to engage in any sort of rational discussion about it. Well, and of course, there was no media coverage at all. I mean, things have changed. And by then, uh, Kiara, my daughter, had desisted. Uh, she persisted with, the, I mean, everybody knows the story that she went to a horse farm. You know, uh, Dr. Jack Turbin thinks I somehow forced her to go to the horse farm, which, no, she wanted to go. She went with our horse. 
exactly something she wanted to do. And, and it, the whole change of environment and being physical and worn out all the time and having poor internet gave her the space to desist. Um, so by then, by the time these articles were happening, she had desisted. Um, and so, you know, prior to that, I, I wasn't going, I didn't, she didn't know that I was doing the website. Can you tell us, was there a particular moment in time where you really started to think, holy crap, this is a medical scandal? Yep. When? Are you going to know when? Yeah. Any particular Um, thing that you learned about or any particular realization that made you come to that conclusion? Well, you know, okay, it's such a, there's a lot to say about this, I guess. So I dug into the old research, okay? Um, Yeah. Alexander Corte in, in Germany. I don't know. You guys, have you inter- You should interview him. I know. Honestly, very, he would, I think. So he wrote stuff years ago. And, and a lot of it, you know, was like, it's been known for a long time that a certain proportion of gender dysphoric young people, not all, but some, actually end up being gay or lesbian. We know there's more than that. We know there's autism and all the other things, you know, because I don't want to overemphasize this, but this has been known. He talked about it. I think it was a 2008 uh, research study he did, which I wrote about. Um, There was a shift. What I saw is there was a shift. It's like, first of all, desistance wasn't a bad thing. You know, why would desistance be a bad thing? If you can avoid a lifetime of medicalization, why isn't every, I still, honestly, even though I've been watching this and I'm a lot more cynical than I used to be, I don't understand why desistance is basically a dirty word. It's like, even if you're an adult trans person, you're really happy. Why not be happy if somebody doesn't have to go through all this, right? So at that time, desistance was, you know, if not the goal, it was at least a positive thing, right? Mm-hmm. So then I see, all of a sudden, I see all this modern stuff with like Olson Kennedy and Diane Aronsaft and all of these people doing kind of the opposite. And then, you know, you want to talk about the medical scandal part. Pretty early on, I learned that if a child goes on puberty blockers and proceeds to cross-sex hormones they will very likely be permanently sterile. And this is not denied by anybody. It's talked about openly by the affirming clinicians. They know it's a problem. And when I first saw it, I'm like, well, hang on a minute. Sterilizing children, we don't do that. Um, You know, and I did a whole article on that. Of course, the response was, oh, you just want barefoot and pregnant women. You know, oh, what's so great about having kids? It's like, This is not the point. The point is making the decision for a minor whether they will or will not have children. It's not about whether they have children or not. It's about making that decision. And so I was shocked. I thought, okay, well, once everybody knows this, that's going to be it. Nope. (laughs) Right? I've had that thought so often. Oh, once they all hear about this. Everybody will understand. Well, now it's pretty clear, isn't it, to all of us that nothing is too much, it seems like to me. I mean, you know, you're non-binary and you want to have your breasts removed and or you want nullification surgery. Do we need to define what that is? That's another one that I was like, you got to be kidding. You guys know what nullification surgery is, yeah, right? Yeah, 
That's where you try to smooth everything. I think it's mainly males who do it, right? Uh, right, where they want to smooth out everything so they're kind of smooth and there's no nipples and there's no genitalia and it's yeah to turn you into kind of like a sexless doll i mean that's what it that's what the outcomes yeah. seem to look like it's really like a ken doll yeah if anybody sees them anymore do they exist <laughs> barbie and ken dolls Don't know. <laughs> so that this has happened to me too because like throughout the last you know six or seven years i kept thinking okay once people realize this that will be the turning point and you're so right, right that every time you think this is the end just there's more tolerance for more shocking and shocking things and i think what really comes to mind especially that you mentioned multiple personality disorder it's interesting you say that because this seems to be really similar to what happened there and what happened with repressed memories, and the way the psychological and medical community and psychiatrists kind of all bought into this belief. And that justified pretty horrendous behavior, which, like you said, leads the child and kind of takes advantage of the power of suggestibility and all of these really vulnerable aspects of being a kid. Had you known much about that before you started doing this work? I'm sure now you're very familiar with those kinds of epidemics, psychiatry, but like, when did you kind of connect the dots between what's happening now and those types of things? Well, I'd have to credit uh, Michael Bailey with uh, drawing my attention to that. Um, I didn't know a lot about it. I knew of it, you know, but I hadn't dug into it at all. But he, he's the one who drew my attention to it, and then I started digging into it. And, um, you know, the thing is, a lot of this stuff is still very fraught, though. Uh, you know, the satanic abuse, uh, the recovered memories, all that. There was a massive lawsuit in Chicago, which I put in the art. When I did the article about this uh, multiple personality thing, I drew on that uh, that and some of the background stuff on that because I had learned about it by then. But, you know... Especially in the U.S., there's so there's still so much. Okay, let me just jump to this because I'm talking around it. When I wrote that article, and anytime I've talked about the issue of multiple personalities and recovered memories and stuff on Twitter, I get attacked by a certain segment of feminists who still believe all of it. Yeah, right. And you know, it, it's. <laughs> They don't, they, this certain sector of feminists, and I tell you, they're not all the same people, but this is like a whole other part of this that we could get into, you know, all the sectarianism and, and everything. And I know you both know about it. Um, the other one is anything to do with brain sex. Mm -hmm. I wrote an article. I, 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 it turns out there's a pretty good body of literature and from the Dutch, some of it. And I, co- I actually contacted the, um, the author of uh, several studies where they've studied uh, FTMs, right, um, and language facility. Um, and it turns out, surprise, surprise, that testosterone has an effect on language, verbal skills, and conversely, spatial uh, skills. Uh, yeah. 
And so, you know, it's not like dramatic where all of a sudden you can't talk if you go on testosterone or you suddenly become a genius with rotating objects in space in your head. But there is an effect. It's well known. This is this is a this is, you know, even outside the realm of transgender, this is known. So I wrote an article about it and I got jumped on because, oh, my God, you can't really talk about brain differences between men and women. And I sort of feel like, well, what? So you think that the hormones stop at the neck or something? Like, of course they have an impact. Anyway, I've kind of gone on a tangent here. It's incredibly like Northern Ireland where there's so many different factions. Nobody can keep up. Nobody's quite sure of what each group is standing for. They're all divided. Right. And each group is, is really emphatic and silencing of anybody else. And what it does is it, it narrows the circle to only the utter experts can speak because everybody else is frightened out of their mind because it's so easy to stand on a, on a landmine if you say something. It's, it's incredibly destructive for anybody trying to disseminate information. Yeah, I mean, and it, it, people want, you know, I understand when people say stay in your lane. I mean, I get what is meant by that, but it is very, we're so splintered now, you know, even those of us who have concerns about the same issue. I I tweeted something just the other day, a guy brought up how at UNC Chapel Hill in North Carolina that um, they were talking about this, they were changing how faculty, I don't know if you guys saw this thread, it was quite interesting. It's, the, it's what people are required to do to maintain their jobs and so forth, basically signing loyalty oaths around various things. Mm-hmm. And I actually quote tweeted the part where it was about gender stuff, you know, because that was part of it. And somebody responded to my tweet and said, oh, please, 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 just, just stay on gender. You know, you shouldn't, you shouldn't dip your toe into anything else. And I mean, it's, I feel like it's impossible now. And I don't know if you've noticed, I'm sure you have, but a lot of people who were never talking about gender issues, who were talking about other things, are talking yeah, about it now. Yeah. Like, you know, people, some, I'm out to just pick somebody out of a hat, Wesley Yang. He wasn't talking about gender. Um, he was talking about a lot of other things. You know, all of a sudden he's talking about it constantly. Who's Wesley Yang? Uh, Matt, Sorry, I don't know who that is. Wesley Yang is a writer. Um, you should check him mm. out. Um <laughs> I'm going to have to laugh, though, because I suggested that on Twitter the other day, and somebody said he's anti-woman. And then <laughs> I said, what's anti-woman? And they sent, they sent a couple tweets that, to me, didn't seem anti-woman. Anyway, we could talk for five hours oh, about do. all this. Yeah. But, um, yeah. but there's a lot of people who are noticing this gender stuff yeah. now. Uh, have we ever lived in an era where it is so silent, or have we just unearthed the fact that it's been so silenced and maybe we were ignorantly silenced. Maybe we didn't know that we were silenced as we were. Well, it depends on when you're talking. When would that have started? I don't, I think you could talk about it. I mean, this has all happened so fast, right? I mean, I think you could have an intelligent conversation about this, what, in 2010, maybe? Yeah. Um, Maybe even a little bit later. Um, Yeah. I mean, it was shut down pretty much by the time I tried to look into it in 2014. But I mean, as we know, and I'm sure it's been said many times, I mean, we didn't have pediatric transition here until it started in 2007 in Boston, yeah. right? Uh, so. Well, you said something interesting, Denise, earlier about, um, you, you know, you set up Fourth Wave Now and Stephanie Davis Arise set up Transgender Trend. 
And in and around the same time, UK, USA, and you said actually culturally it wasn't actually possible to set this up as an international. Am I right? Yeah, you're trying to do something really difficult. Hats off to you, Jen Jen Speck, because, yeah, so, you know, it's funny, last night, because I knew I was going to talk to you guys, I went, so, you know, I was searching for people, anybody, anybody, anybody who could understand and I stumbled on a blog post that Stephanie had written mm. and it, it, on her uh, her old blog, which was called Listening to Children yeah. or something. I forget what it was called. Okay. And it was called Is Is My Child Transgender? Yeah. And it was it, and it was it was questioning that. I found her. And so I actually found the email because I reached out to her. It was April of 2015. Wow. And I said, hi, this is who I am. Here's my website. Da, da, da. <laughs> then we became, you know. We, we've never met in person, but we're, we're friends. I mean, we are really friends. And, you know, I said this before we started recording, but we, we, we together thought we would do Transgender Trend as an international organization and ended up deciding not to because of all the differences in our medical system, in our legal system, uh, so many, so many things. And it, w- it was the right decision. It's very difficult, uh, as you know. Stella, because you're running an international organization, which is what we wanted to do. But I mean, and you, you know, you're doing a lot of great things, but we, it just was too much. And I mean, look, I I, I feel like the progress that's been made in the UK around this issue, there's so many things that we just don't have here. It's not just that we're more extreme here and we are right. I mean, it's the wild West here. You know, it's not like the NHS where they can like, kind of bring the hammer down and make decisions about things. It's just do whatever you want here. It's cowboys, right? Cowgirls, cowboys. Um, but so many other things, right? It's a small country. You can all go down to London. It's not an impossible task, right? Um, and many other things. But um, Many other things, yeah. It's very different. But, I, I it, it, you know, I, I feel <laughs> inspired and at the same time jealous, you know, of – just how much progress is made there. I mean, I think things are starting. I mean, obviously, the mainstream media is starting to cover stuff. You know, in 2014, 2015, not at all. So there are changes that are happening in the United States. But I'm really, can I just kind of go on here for a little bit? Um, I think most people know that... I don't think in the UK you have the same sort of right-left division around this issue. Like here, it's like, oh my God, it's nothing but extreme right-wing homophobic Christian nationalism, right? That's what people think, right? And and if you're a good lefty, obviously you're going to affirm, affirm, affirm. You don't have that kind of thing over there like we do, right? I mean, the perce- I'm talking about a perception. Clearly, yeah. it's not true. That it's nothing but right wing, blah, 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 people who are concerned about this in the US. I, I think the very strong reputation of lefty feminists who are banning the bomb and who are, you know, protesting against the rainforests, they have really created a space where this idea that they were such a, a well known left leaning group of people, for them all, not all of them, but many of them to speak up has really shaped. And defied that idea that these can be all kind of 
Bible thumping evangelists. Right. But I mean, if you're talking feminists, I mean, we have a strong tradition of feminism in this country, too. Right. But, Mm -hmm. you know, for whatever reason, uh, I do feel I I really um, there's some concerns that I've had since forever about the U.S. efforts. Um, Let me just say first, I don't have anything against religious people or Christianity or any religion. I have nothing against it. I respect people's faith. But I think what keeps happening in the U.S. is that, you know, especially if you're talking about what's going on with legislation efforts here in the States and some other things, a lot of it is led by attorneys and groups who have a history of also fighting against gay rights. And, you know, it's understandable, but I've always felt like, you know, for obvious reasons, there's so many gay and lesbian people, young people in particular, who are now saying they're trans, you know, and I don't know what the answer is. I I don't know, like, I don't think it's evil or wrong to work with those people. You know, some people think, oh, this is terrible. You can't ever touch those people. At the same time, I feel like I want those groups, the the more conservative religious groups to publicly do a little soul searching to say publicly, okay, maybe, you know, we didn't think that gay marriage was such a good idea, but we understand that, you know, that the trans contagion, and it is a contagion with some young people that it is, that it is hurting some gay and lesbian people. And we don't agree with that, you know, because otherwise it keeps getting marginalized into that. You know, like, see, well, see, those people are homophobes, you know, and you're, you're aligned with these homophobes. I don't, I, don't, I don't know what the answer is to this. I'm glad you bring this up because this has been on my mind a lot. And I've been trying to parse through this, just doing some writing and thinking on it. And when we went to, so Lisa Marciano, Stephen Levine, Ken Zucker, and I spoke at the APA a couple months ago. And in the audience, it was interesting because it was a packed room. We were like tucked away in this corner room in the middle of like the fifth floor. Like we thought nobody was coming to our session and it was standing room only. It was totally packed. And we gave our, our, you know, um, panel, we each gave a little presentation and, you know, afterwards people lined up to ask questions. And we realized most of the people in the audience that were asking questions, not necessarily people see that they were there kind of as representatives of gender clinics and affirmative care, really trying to counter a lot of stuff that we said. And the, the arguments we kept hearing over and over were like, you know, I am a gay adult and there's no way my parents would have known about my conflict. So how can you say that a sudden trans identity is proof that actually the person's not trans? When I came out, my parents were shocked or like there is a history of saying that somebody's sexual preferences could have been caused by trauma. And that's what you guys are saying. So like, I totally get why on a surface glance, this does look the same. And I think because these really conservative groups keep taking up the cause. It's very hard for us to argue, no, this is totally, totally different. 
it's like the same pattern, like psychiatrists wondering what's wrong with these people or saying, uh, a quote, lifestyle of homosexuality is detrimental to health. Therefore, we should help people accept being straight. Like it is all the same arguments. So it's really yeah. hard to kind of cross that bridge if somebody only has a cursory understanding of these issues. And I feel like we have not done a great job of acknowledging like how similar this might look to an untrained eye. Yeah, well, that's where, you know, LG, LGB Alliance and the people in that yeah. realm, that's their, that's their bailiwick, yeah. right? Um, I mean, not that you or I no, can't so talk right. about it. you're so right. You know, and they're doing such important work. And again, that's another concern I have. Obviously, people in LGB Alliance aren't, don't want to make common cause with somebody who, you know, thinks they're evil and they're going to hell because they're yeah, a lesbian. I know. I mean, you know, it's like, and I don't know the answer to it. It's, it's frustrating, you know? Um, I don't know if you watch the, uh, I mean, this is getting into, you know, some tricky territory, but I don't know if you watched the hearing in Florida yesterday. No. Okay, so, I mean, look, I'm not an expert on this. I haven't been watching it deeply, deeply, deeply. But I think what they're trying to do in Florida is a little bit different from some of the other states who are trying to criminalize a pediatric transition. I don't, I actually don't think that's a good approach. You know, the the, the ones that are saying, okay, you know, the doctor's going to go to jail or pay this massive fine. First of all, they're following the guidelines right of their professional organizations and those professional organizations, we see that it gets hammered over and over again. Oh, all the professional organizations in the U S agree with affirmative care, right? We know that those guidelines were not written by the entire membership, right? Very well, but uh, it, you know, it's still used. My understanding of what they're trying to do in Florida, whether you agree with uh, what they're doing or not is different. They are trying to set standards through their medical uh, board. Um, and I think their position is the ones who are trying to get a change. This is experimental treatment. Um, we're not going to criminalize doctors. We're saying as the medical board of Florida that we're going to put out some guidelines because of this. Is that just for children? It's experimental care, or is it... Okay, now again, I don't have all the details, but what I understand so far is this is focused on Medicaid. So Medicaid is not supposed to pay for experimental treatments. Yeah. You know, Medicaid is our public uh, health, uh, Stella, for yeah, uh, often yeah. low-income people and stuff like that. Um, and so that's the angle I believe they're trying to take so that it isn't just children, it's adults. But the, the restrictions they're trying to put on children via the guidelines that they may develop are more extreme than for the adults, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, they're catching, as you know, I mean, they're catching all kinds of health for it. Uh, now, I did watch the hearing, and this relates to what we were just talking about. And I didn't watch the whole thing. I watched a good chunk of it. And several of the people who testified in favor of the more restrictive guidelines brought in religion, including there was a detransition. And again, I am not against people having faith, okay, at all. Uh, she stood up and talked about being a detransition, and it was all about Jesus. And, you know, on the one hand, I feel like that's her right 
you know, if, if, if going to church or being religious helped her with detransition, I'm not going to judge her for that. But I don't even need to say my butt, do I? <laughs> because it's like, okay, here we go. It just feeds right into yeah. this. Yeah. We hope you're enjoying this episode of our podcast. We work very hard to maintain high quality content for this show. And we're grateful to Rhyme and Genspect for supporting us. RIME, or Rethink Identity Medicine Ethics, is a non-profit organization dedicated to improving long-term care for gender-variant individuals. Visit rethinkime.org to learn more. And Genspect is an international alliance of parents and professional groups whose aim is to advocate for parents of gender-questioning children and young people. If you'd like to become a patron, you'll have access to weekly transcripts and special Q&As, and you can join our listener community. Now back to the show. It's like the Walt Heyer story, right? I mean, it's all right. about being saved, and that is why I stopped being trans. And and that right. sounds too much like ex-gay, right? And I think that's the problem. I think you're so right to point that out. And well, and, and not only does it sound like ex-gay, but it's like, unless you accept Jesus into your life, it, it, it feels like there's no other way. And I mean, on this, I'd like to actually kind of circle back to what you did with the blog, because you were the first voice in the U.S., along with Stephanie in the U.K., to actually say there's a really strong uh, progressive and liberal argument against this medicalization. and. You know, Mm -hmm. I remember when I first connected with you and I, I mean, we were, you interviewed me for your, for fourth wave now. And there were just, there were incredible articles coming out constantly digging into the research. Like you guys were like doing the job of researchers on a blog Mm -hmm. and it seemed like I imagined in my head, like this workshop with like Mm -hmm. you and like 12 other writers, like slaving away 24 hours a day with like coffee cups and like, (laughs) I don't know what else. (laughs) What was it like? I mean, when you realized there was nobody else out there and you're like, I didn't mean to start a blog, but then here I go. What happened? Because it felt like there's no way you could have had a job while also developing fourth wave. Now it was massive. Yeah. I mean, I had, I had a part-time job. Okay. So that allowed it. If I was working 80 hours a week somewhere else, I don't know, maybe I would have lost my mind and done it all night long. I don't know. But I was at first I was writing on pure fear and anxiety Mm. At first, because I was so worried about my daughter, you know, that, I mean, it was just absolutely running on fear. And then it morphed into anger, you know, but they were both fuel. It was totally emotionally driven, you know. I mean, every day I'd sit down, I'd go, okay, I'm going to write this thing. It'd be like, what, eight in the morning or something. And I'd be glued into the chair until like eight o'clock that night. You know, it was like, (laughs) what happened? You know, and then finally I take my dog for a walk. So I don't have an answer to you. I mean, I just, I was, dri- and I, this may sound strange because it is such a serious thing, but it's also very interesting because it touches on everything. It touches on medicine. It touches on law. It touches on the media. It, I mean, it's everything. And then if you have a personal stake in it, right? And I'm, I'm a very intellectually curious person, you know, and inquisitive, and I dig down into things. And I mean, it was absolutely compelling and again no one else was doing it i felt like i was discovering something that nobody else had discovered 
Galileo. But did you did your daughter <laughs> notice that you were stuck to the computer? Did she notice that there was a fire within you, or did did that pass her by? Or well, I I've, I'm kind of as much as I I've uh, if I if somebody came and said if if I could get rid of the internet or have it, which would you choose? I'd say get rid of the damn thing because I think it's caused so many issues. Having said that, I am an addict. I am a total internet addict. And being sort of a researcher type, you know, you used to have to go to the library and look at microfiche. Do you guys know what microfiche is? <laughs> you know, and to just sit in, in a room and have the entire knowledge base of humanity at your, at your, you know. Anyway, I'm an addict. What can I say? I'm Denise and I'm an internet addict. <laughs> Hi, Denise. You heard it here, everybody. <laughs> So I don't know. I think I went off the track there, though. Well, I don't think I answered your question. I mean, I think you. What What I'm curious about is like, when did the emails start pouring in? Because like, when you were looking for similar voices, you couldn't find any. Then you were like, "Well, I guess I'll no. just start this like life changing blog." <laughs> yeah. um, Hello. Then what? I mean, did you just start getting like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of parents contacting you? Like, it obviously grew. Yeah, I mean, it built yeah. up. It built up. Right. And then, of course, it's all been par parceled out now. Right. I mean, all these uh, support organizations started, you know, ROGD Kids and there's a huge online forum that started. But yes. Yeah. You know. And, and again, at first it was sort of a support thing. We were all going, ain't it awful? Ain't it awful? Mm -hmm. But I mean, ain't it awful isn't enough. And and I mean, this touches on something else that's really important to me. Uh, you know, people say a lot of stuff and rant and rave, but you know, you need to have your facts down. And I, you know, I'm a precision person. I mean, you know, and it's like, I want to know what's really going on and I'm going to say the truth of what's going on, even if it's inconvenient. Sometimes it's inconvenient. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, I mentioned this in this other interview, but everybody thinks that the reason Thailand raised the age of medical transition was because of Susie Green. It's not true. Just not Why? true. Why did they? Uh, there was activists, actually gay activists in, in Thailand who, uh, were seeing the kind of stuff that we're seeing, you know, and I think they were especially focusing on, you know, gay boys who were rushing in to, uh, you know, have treatment. I think, I don't know if they've changed it, but the last I knew Thailand, you cannot have, you have to have parental permission up to age, I think 20 um, so they're pretty restrictive, you know, at the time that Susie Green's uh, child went, that wasn't the case, but she didn't cause it. There was a whole activist base that was going yeah. on. I'm aware too, like you're someone who's knee deep in this stuff. And I know there have probably been things mentioned that maybe the kind of like newbie parent isn't aware of. Can you just explain who Susie Green is just for anyone who's not familiar mm. with this story? So Susie Green is, I believe she's the CEO of Mermaid still. Is she? Um, so. Right. So her child, you know. And Mermaids is, is a UK um, organization that supposedly advocates for transgender youth. It's like gender spectrum in the US, which doesn't have enough attention on it, by mm -hmm. the way. Um, gender spectrum is a much bigger, more well-funded and far-reaching organization. I just want to throw that okay. in. Um hmm. Yeah, Mermaids, right? It's a quote-unquote support organization. They're very, very pro-affirmation. 
Um, and in, God, what was it, 20, it must have been like 2012 that she, so my understanding is she brought her child uh, over here to the U.S. because you could not get uh, puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones in the U.K. at that time. And he, uh, she took the child to uh, Norman Spack's clinic in Boston, which is where pediatric transition started in the U.S. I've seen an interview even with, uh, actually, it's in, it, whatever, I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole. And then they went to Thailand. And was it the child's 16th birthday? Yeah. yeah. Uh, had uh, SRS, I think full SRS, as Male far as child. I understand it. Transitioning to Male child. trans girl um, surgery. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So, but you know, you, you know, it, it, just to touch, because I'm thinking now, when I think about these things I discovered, I remember when I discovered this article that uh, it's called Age is Just a Number. It's a research article. Um, and it discusses all of the uh, surgeons who have done SRS on underage uh, males. Hmm. Um with interviews and everything. Um, and many of them had concerns, you know, that the, the thing was popping up too quick. People weren't qualified. Uh, it was like the wild West. Which, which brings up your point that gender moves into everything. When people think, you know, why would you be so absorbed? It is, it touches on everything. It touches things like what is informed consent and age is just a number. And this kind of new concept of being child led rather than child centered, and there's so many other things it brings in about what it is to be human and how we need to kind of handle ourselves in society that you, you can read forever. You could literally read forever about this subject. Yes. Moves in. Where are you now? How are you seeing it? Because you've said a few times here, it's so different now. It's so different now. And it is. It does feel very different. But how is America? Because I'm still trying to catch you with America. Well, I mean, the biggest thing that's different about now is there's so many of us, right? I mean, it isn't just me in my living room going, what the fuck? You know, I mean, there's so many people talking about it. So there's that. The media thing is different. I mean, I don't think you can overstate the when uh, Erica Anderson and... Um, Laura Edwards Leeper started talking about this. They're going to get op-eds in, in the New York Times and the Washington Post. They just are. And I mean, you can still have problems and say they're too much, they're too they're still too affirmative, but that was a watershed the two of them uh coming out and talking about. It. And they're still talking about it. At least Erica Anderson is. I'm not sure. And I'm sure they've both paid a terrible terrible price. You know, we all know people have paid a terrible price. As far as how is it different, though, as far as the way things are moving, I mean, it does seem like, there. you know, it's, it's at least we're talking about it as a controversy. I don't know, though. I mean, I, I don't, I'd like to hear what you guys think. It's also Canada. Like, Canada is just as, af- however you want to put it, affirmation crazy as the U.S., with a totally different system. I mean, they have close to fully quote-unquote, fully socialized medicine, not quite. I mean, when people say socialized medicine, I mean, the the NHS, in the UK you have, because the employees all work for the government too. In Canada, it's government-run insurance, but it's private providers. Okay. Um, And here, of course, it's just uh, whatever. Um, 
I don't know. I don't know where this is going to end up. It feels like there's a lot of doubling and tripling down that's going on. And the people who are getting published, I mean, I think you've both seen uh, Jack Turbin's latest published in the Journal of the American Academy of Pediatrics. Jesse Single wrote a great, great takedown. Uh, But I mean, the institutional capture in this country is so profound I don't know what. To, what do you well, guys actually? Think? I'd, I'd like to talk about institutional capture because, along with the kind of um, like mass psychogenic illnesses, like I think this is part of that framework, and I'd like to talk about that because a lot of parents who listen to our podcast are like, I literally have no idea what's going on, and how could it be that I've taken my kid to six different therapists and they've all told me this? So institutional capture is a big part of that. I'm wondering, like, how do you guys think about that? How do you define that? How do we just help people wrap their minds around it? Because it seems conspiratorial, doesn't it? Like, if you just, again, like, kind of jump into this, you're dipping your toe in the water. It seems a bit conspiratorial to say institutional capture, though I believe it's true. How how do you guys understand that? You start, Stella. I'm mulling. (laughs) Um, well, there's a few things that I think. For starters, I think that we need to separate the gender wars into a cultural war and a medical war. And if we hmm. focus on the medical war, I think we can get further and let the cultural war be separated. A, a kind of a separation between medicine and culture could have doctors arguably listen to us sooner. Hmm. And just be aware that that's just my feeling. I, I often feel it. I think the culture war is going to run and run and run. While the medical war could conceivably, perhaps through good, decent research and, and the way we're doing it. But I think we're, we're often not quite conscious enough that there are two simultaneous wars going on. Yeah, they're sort of interlocking. Yeah, they're so- interlocking. We're allowing them interlock. We're allowing political activists to shape medical care. We need to zero in on that. Yeah. I mean, about research, where I feel discouraged is that the idea that it is unethical to have a control group is very well established. So, I mean, look, my daughter is part of a control group. I did not approve medical transition for her. She desisted. There's many others like her, right? It's a it's an unofficial control group. And I know there's many other parents out there. You know there's parents out there saying, uh-uh, we're not doing puberty blockers. They're not being studied, right? They're not going to study that they, the whatever, the activist clinicians, for lack of a better term, they're not going to formally study it because they consider it to be unethical. Mm -hmm. In other words, oh, you've got a child with gender dysphoria. You know, if you don't give them puberty blockers, they're going to kill themselves. We don't need to get into, we know there's no evidence that that's the case, but they're still not going to formally study it. I mean, I've thought about this, you know, the Dutch and the Toronto clinic kind of did that. They had a control group because they didn't approve, right? And they ended up with a pretty high level of desistance, uh, I want to bookmark that because I want to say something else about that population of desisters in a minute. But um, so we've seen it again. This older research, right? Like Corte did in Germany or talked about, it, like Ken, Ken Zucker did, like the Dutch, they did do it. We did have control groups, right? But now you know the the current 
crop of activists and even clinicians just throw that out. Like, oh, you know, that's worthless research. Here's why. So it's very frustrating because who is going to study it? Nobody, the NIH isn't going to fund a controlled study like that. And at the same time, and I do believe this, we, are create, we as a society are creating persistence. You know, there's no way to prove it without a control group, yeah. though. You know, you get Christina Olson and her team up at uh, University of Washington. You know, she, her stuff has gotten massive traction, right? She's gotten tons of research dollars. There's no control group. And, you know, they're transitioning socially, these children, you know, from an early age. And guess what? Oh, surprise, surprise. They're still trans later. What if you had said to those children... You know, well, that's great. Wear what you want. Cut your hair. You can do anything you want. Play with whatever. Do whatever you want. But, you know, we're not going to say that you're the opposite sex. Who's doing that? See, that's the other thing our opponents accuse us of. They say, oh, you're against social transition. You know, you don't. So you're going to make a kid, you know, cut their hair or not cut their hair or this, that. That just makes me so mad. You know, because, you know, no. Do what you want. You know, I'll support. And I said that to my daughter. You know, look, fine. Do whatever you want. Cut your hair. I paid for all of it. We went to the men's section. We bought everything. Down to the skivvies. All men's stuff, you know. Whatever. Fine. You know. That doesn't get talked about enough. You know, that middle ground where you aren't saying, no, you have to act like a girl or a boy. I mean, I'm spe- I know I'm preaching to the converted to you two, but you know, I, I know you want to talk about the Dutch, and I am very interested in what you're going to say about the Dutch and the German. But just for anybody who doesn't know, your 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 daughter, she desisted a few years ago, and is 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 happy with that, or yep. you know, just a few lines on that because she is, know. and she's sort of. I, I think this is the case, especially with desisters. I've noticed even some of the detransitioners. So for people who don't know. Generally speaking, when you talk about a desister, it is someone who abandoned the trans ID before any medical steps, right? Whereas a detransitioner is someone who took medical steps. I think especially with desisters, and my daughter is in this category, she's moved on. Yeah, yeah. I mean, she thinks it's BS, and, and you know, I think if anything, she might even feel a little embarrassed about the t- that time. But she's on to other things, Right. And I've seen this with some other D-sisters. You know, people, they don't want their entire lives to be built. Even the D-transitioners, some of the more public ones, are kind of done. <laughs> you know, yeah. I've done my bit. I'm finished yeah. with this. Which is a healthy is. thing, it really, is isn't it? Mm-hmm. I think so, yeah. And the Dutch, you wanted to say something about the Dutch? Or the desisting population, I think. Mm-hmm. So one of the things I wish you guys had talked to them about when you, uh-huh. you talked to Steensma and... Uh, uh, Debris. Debris. I've emailed some with Steensma, actually. Um, I wish you had got... Okay, this to me is another thing that stands out, okay? So we've talked a lot about gay and lesbian young people transitioning, okay? We also know now, though, there's tons of heterosexual kids transitioning. Tons! Yeah, we talked about that, definitely, yeah. Right, and Helena, you know, Helena has talked about that extensively and written some great stuff about it. But the thing is... In that clinic, the study that everyone talks about and that I've written about too, the persisters were same-sex attracted. Yeah. 
The D sisters. That's what we talked about in our, our detransition episode. Right. So, but, 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 you know, it's kind of like, this is a big thing that sticks out, you know, that is different from the, the old days, Mm -hmm. you know, when the Dutch, you know, it was just a very rare thing with a very few kids were, were approved. I mean, it's huge. Yeah. You know, and I mean, like it again, that is something that also isn't talked about enough. What the hell is going on? Obviously, it's something new. I mean, we know a lot of what it is, right? I mean, it's the stuff on the internet and a lot of other things, and also the whole oh, god, there's just so many things to talk about, we can't cover everything. But the whole it's cool to be queer. Yeah. It's it's absolute BS when they say, oh, no, of course it's not a social contagion. Who would want this? Who would want this horrible, difficult life? And it's like, are you kidding me? To be a white, cis, straight person is the worst thing in the world right now. And besides, I mean, that, that misses the point completely, because what we know from looking at all these other kind of social, contagious, psychogenic illnesses is that the, the distress and the pain is real. Nobody is saying that people are just opting in deliberately because there's some kind of benefit to doing so. It's like their distress gets captured in a certain framework. Yeah. And and there's that kind of um, virtuous suffering. It's like, well, now I'm trans and I'm an oppressed group. And that in and of itself feels both bad and good. And so humans are not so... We're not like uh, robots that just um, do whatever is the most rationally uh, coherent. We do all kinds of weird stuff. And I think that's what we miss when we ask questions like, why would anyone want that? It's like, well, humans do self-destructive things a lot (laughs) if we haven't noticed. I mean, don't you think, though, I mean, there are obviously people with genuine gender dysphoria who are in terrible pain, obviously. But I also do think that there are, and I've met them, frankly, some young people who, it, it, they're not particularly That's in right. pain, but they are choosing the identity because it's, they get a lot of strokes for it and it's cool. And, and there's a third group who are genuinely in pain, but not really about their gender, but it's been channeled into their gender. Yeah. Yep. It feels like everything's channeled into gen. I mean, you guys are therapists. It's like, isn't it just like a great, like it's all just kitchen sink? I say it's in like the, the blog. It just engulfs everything that it comes across. <laughs> if it's autism, if it's multiple personality disorder, if it's bipolar, it's all gender. Actually, let's treat the gender first. At least all that's the way the affirmative model seems to frame it. Well, um, as we round out our conversation, is there anything else that you? would like to say you write a lot you've written a lot and and Stella has another question too but I'm just kind of curious is there anything you want to communicate? so the funny thing is the funny thing is is I'm not writing those like insane spend all day writing art I trick myself into writing articles on Twitter <laughs> you do have some I write them in massive Twitter threads for sure <laughs> Yeah, so I do it in little drips and drabs. I trick myself. I'm really not kidding. <laughs> I'm like, oh, I could never write an article now. So, okay, I'll, I'll do a Twitter thread. Right? The AAP, and I know I've been following the AAP more this summer than I, I've ever followed my before. This is the American Academy of Pediatrics. Did you want to mention something about that or? 
Well, we do have an article that we're working on that I'm it's I'm hoping to get out in a week or so, kind of about the etiology of where this started, where the sort of woke, for lack of a better word, guide, guidance has come from. I mean, what to say about other than the, so it isn't just the AAP, although they seem to be kind of at the top, but you've got all of the organizations, yeah. APA, Endocrine Society, uh, what else? Uh, AMA, all of that's them, the right? That's the institutional culture. That's, that's what I'm saying. How does that happen? Do you have yeah. like a quick thought of like, how does that happen? We obviously talked about the <laughs> outcome. How does this happen? Well, we know, and you'll see, I'm advertising this article. We'll I better get it, it out we'll now. That, it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it's, yeah, it's written by another person who's written some other stuff for me. But, um, I, you know, and I think maybe Genspect has sort of come up against this recently. We know that a lot of, and I wouldn't have known this either, but it's not like the whole body of these organizations gets together in a giant conference and hammers things out. Activist subgroups do stuff, and because of the politics inside the organization, right, they get away with it. And I mean, one thing I don't know and I think someone like, obviously, uh, Julia Mason would be able to speak to this, is how, you know, there's, I think there's 67,000 pediatricians yeah. in that organization. Right. Um, how many of them even know this is going on, are paying any attention, much less agree? I mean, everybody's doing their job, right? They're busy, busy, busy. They're doctors, right? Um Maybe they hear this little thing going on on the, and then they see that it's there, and they th go, "Oh, okay, whatever." I mean, I don't know. I think it's a fascinating question, though, isn't it? And all of the organizations, right? Not just all the other ones we mentioned. Um, I'll tell one little anecdote. Is you may know that uh, Kiara and Helena and two other young women uh, formed an organization which is now defunct. It was called the Peak Resilience Project. Oh yeah. Um, and they went to Washington. Uh, uh, Bernard Lane wrote about this in The Australian. Uh, I think he's the only person who wrote about that trip because Kiara talked to him. But they went into Washington and they talked to a number of uh, politicians, Democratic politicians. They didn't even bother talking to Republicans because they felt like it's the Democrats we need to talk to. And they also went to the APA. And that was their favorite meeting, and they were very, very well received wow. by someone who uh, was instrumental in the, I forget which chapter or division it is, you may know, it's the LGBTQ, uh, whatever it is, division something. And the, the person they talked to, first of all, he, was, he didn't know a lot of the stuff they were telling him about you know, desistance and detransition experiences. Um, he was very receptive and he actually said to them, boy, it would be really great if you would help write something about this for our, whatever it was. Yeah. Well, it didn't happen. And this is somebody who was in the middle of it, who was supportive and interested. I don't think he was faking it. I really don't. From from what they said, I wasn't in the meeting, but they they told us in detail. Um, all I can imagine is he went back and talked to other people in the that division and said, "Oh, you know, I did this and that." And I'm just guessing. Okay, I'm making this up now. They said, "Are you kidding?" That's transphobic. We can't do that. It's all I can guess because he was so enthusiastic. 
and then he just dropped them. Yeah. So what does that mean about everyone else in the APA? Like how many of, like how supportive are people mainly acting out of fear? Yeah. I mean, Sasha, I, I mean, I don't know. Well, when we went to the APA, the, the loud activist people were the ones who stood up, got lined up behind the microphones and spoke. And then after we had all these doctors come up to us, literally eyes dodging around the room in hushed tones saying, yeah. I'm so grateful to have you guys here. You wouldn't believe what's happening at our hospital or at our child psychiatric unit. Like we're seeing this all the time and everything you said resonates so much. And people said, we're so lucky to have another way to think about this. So I think, I think this is probably happening in so many different realms. All of those organizations. Yes. And we can nod along and say that's happening, and it's definitely happening in journalism too. And I meet the journalists, I meet the doctors who say it. And yet they're in positions of responsibility, and they are well paid for those positions of responsibility. And they go home to their families at night and they have their dinners. They need to kind of use their whatever integrity they have or access yes. whatever integrity they have, because it's not enough at this stage. It's not enough to. And there's power in numbers, right? And if if people don't do what you guys have done, I mean, let's talk about your courage and taking all this shit for for stepping forward and showing some integrity. But, you know, the more obviously, imagine if there were a thousand of each of you, you know, a thousand in the UK and a thousand here. We know there's a thousand who have doubts. At least. You know, and and it's actually a question that I have, like if they get in touch with you guys and your networks, what is preventing them? Is it just absolute fear of losing their jobs? Absolute fear of, you know, Twitter. Fear of public shaming has kept society in check for thousands of years. And I honestly think that's stronger than anything. They say their jobs. When you scratch down, it's public shaming. It pretty much explains all of history, doesn't it? Even yeah. the horrible things that have happened, the really yeah. horrible things. And I think sometimes I think there so. are people who aren't really sure if they're crazy or not. Like I, I know people who do this mm. work at the beginning of their like discovery process. They say, is it possible that this is really happening or am I yeah. misunderstanding something? And I, I, I talk I, to people who well, are like, I'm not sure if I could possibly be right about this because it's so awful. That's a really good point. I know a psychologist okay. who the first year of reading about it, she kept on thinking, I could, this couldn't be true. This right. couldn't be true because this means society has gone nuts. And so I must have this wrong. And it took her a full year of very honestly and yeah. diligently thinking, I must have yeah. this wrong for her to realize, no, actually society has gone nuts on this issue. And she was wrong. Yep. And I, you, I know you probably want to wrap up, but I mean, I do think and have thought for a very long time that the suicide thing, which is so established, is an absolute conversation stopper. Uh, and I just felt since forever, you just have to keep pounding on that, that it isn't true. You know, it isn't transition or yeah. die. And a very difficult conversation yeah. to have. It in is. You're very difficult but, to have. It. But I mean, I've said many times, if I had thought that my daughter the, would have killed herself otherwise, absolutely, of course I would have gone along with it. It's the very worst thing that a parent could face. And this is why it's still going on as much as it is, I yeah. think. You know, some of those parent forums that we've seen posts from, even with their very young children, they're yeah. saying, I have to do this because of suicide. 
I keep on telling myself I'm going to go back through the Jazz Jennings series and count how many times they mentioned the suicide stat through that entire series. And I each time I'm like, no, wrong kid, wrong cohort. You've got it all wrong. You're misinformed. They were completely misinformed. Mm. And meanwhile, Jazz is clinically depressed throughout most of it. I know. Well, Denise, we we know. It's a negative note to end on. I know. (laughs) It's it's a very negative note. But I think when people wake up and and really, really see what's going on and start to watch the trajectories of these young people, I think that awareness is sobering and scary, but it's also what helps us make better decisions. And we just want to thank you because, I mean, I know for me, meeting you and getting connected with Fourth Wave Now was really like the first time I realized these parents don't have help. I want to try and help. And I have to say, like, I, I always say I wish I didn't have this work, though I am grateful that it is helpful to people. And we think Fourth Wave now, of course, has played such a humongous role in helping parents feel sane. So thank you. It's been great to talk. I have to thank you both, too, for your courage in being public figures in this and just what you've done. Thank you. Thanks for joining us this week on Gender, A Wider Lens. This podcast is sponsored by Rhyme and Genspect, and listener support means a lot to us. The best way to help is to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Follow us on social media, and if you'd like to become a patron, you'll have access to weekly transcripts of the show, special Q&As, and you can join our listener community. Just go to our link tree. That's linktr.ee slash widerlenspod. Our discussions are for educational purposes only and are not intended as a substitute for mental health services.